Whether and when to have children can be a huge decision for any woman pursuing a career. When that decision is removed from her control, it can have profound effects on the rest of her working life. That's really what we see in the occupation trajectories that the kind of most clear and most stark difference between these women who have these unplanned pregnancies and those who don't is that they don't seem to advance kind of in the occupational ladder by moving to jobs that require higher skills. Welcome to The Pie. I'm your host, Tess Vigland. Economists are always talking about the pie, how it grows and shrinks, how it's sliced, who gets the biggest share. In this show, we're talking about the most pressing matters of the day seen through the lens of economics. The Pie is a production of the University of Chicago's Becker Friedman Institute. And in this episode, we're exploring what reproductive autonomy means to a woman's career potential. With the overturning of Roe v. Wade, many states have implemented abortion bans that remove the choice of whether or not to have a child from women experiencing unplanned pregnancies. Women's reproductive freedom is most often framed as a moral issue, but as our guest today found in her research, it's also an economic one for the women whose careers can be greatly affected by an unplanned pregnancy. Hi, my name is Yana Gallen. I'm an assistant professor at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy. My favorite pie is definitely strawberry rhubarb. Clearly the best pie. Yana, let's start with some context and history and remind us a bit of what it meant for women's careers to have a child before the advent of birth control. Uh, We're going to be talking about the impact of being able to time when to have a child uh, these days. So remind us of the days when we didn't have that option at all. Oh, yeah. Well, coincidentally, Claudia Golden just won the Nobel Prize in part for her work on, on this with Larry Katz. And, you know, they studied what happened when the birth control pill or this ability to time pregnancy was introduced and found that, you know, an aggregate kind of this shifted women's decision to go to college and what kind of careers they pursued and why, because, you know, if you're going to probably end up pregnant in your early 20s, then you're not going to be able to invest in kind of demanding jobs or any jobs. So women used to um, maybe work for a little while, meet a husband and have a family, and, um, and many women wouldn't go to college because they would have gotten pregnant before they kind of even showed up. So I think that the idea that you can manage a career requires you to make some serious investments early on in life. And those are really complicated if you're probably going to get pregnant at some point early on in, in your you know, independent adult life. Women didn't used to you know, make those investments. So they would choose careers that didn't have this like big and early investment, long-term payoff kind of feature, something like law or any kind of business career that would not be on the table. And at that point, the average age of, of women having their first child was what, 21? Yeah. So in the 1970s, the average age of first birth was 21, which is very different than now and kind of unimaginable, I think, to think that many people that you know would have had children by age 21. Right. So birth control comes along, and over the past 50 years, uh, what has that meant in terms of the average age women do start having children? Obviously, it's much older. 
and the overall impact of that on their earning power in the workplace. Uh, we are having children significantly later, right, on average? Yeah, exactly. So um, women were in 1970 on average 21 years old when they had their first child. Now they're 27 years old when they have their first child. But that child still has a really large impact, at least you know that we see in the data. The year that a woman has a child, her earnings seem to drop kind of permanently by almost 20% um, in countries like the U.S. even more. Uh, and that, I think, think suggests that we have to think really hard actually about whether women might be planning to make those impacts as small as possible because they're so large. That's kind of what our paper's about, trying to understand what those impacts can be if they're happening at kind of the if there is a wrong time to have children and how large the impacts are because if there is such a time then we won't see much of it. Uh, people will avoid it and can avoid it now. So you set out to explore the extent to which delaying pregnancy can mitigate the impact of having a child on women's careers. And to do this, you looked at Sweden. Why Sweden? So the reason, to be honest, is because Nordic countries, Sweden, Denmark, and also to some extent Finland, and also to some extent Norway, have really amazing data that they link altogether kind of the analog would be in the US if you could link up you know all people's health records and labor market information and scores in college with their social security number and just see like a huge amount of information about individuals anonymously it would be amazing if we could do that in the US but there's no infrastructure for that set up here so the data is really rich in these um, in these Nordic countries because they they do that and their statistical offices, you know, help researchers in understanding, I think, really important questions by providing this anonymous but um, connected data from a variety of registers. So it really had nothing to do with any differences in women and education and childbirth and all that. It was really just the availability of the, of the data for you. Yes. <laughs> Interesting. And I think that's, uh, you'll find many studies in economics journals in recent years, which use Nordic data because it lets you look at questions that you just can't answer in, um, in other countries. Well, you were specifically looking at the earning trajectory, uh, the, the labor market outcomes of childless women who used long-term birth control methods. So describe for us what data set you were looking at and why. We combine information on people's income from the tax authorities, basically, with information on people's use of like doctor's visits and their prescription drug registry. So anytime that you pick up a prescription, which includes many forms of birth control, that gets kind of recorded and, and we see that. And we're interested in women who we know wanted to delay pregnancy. So they were using contraceptives. And actually, we're interested in women who are using particular types of contraceptives, those which don't really require them to do much of anything for it to work. You know, you'd worry that if you take out something like the pill, then if you kind of sort of don't mind getting pregnant, then um, then you might kind of sort of use the pill. 
maybe use it irregularly. And so we wouldn't know exactly what your intentions are just from the fact that you are on the pill because you can kind of use it sporadically or use it really effectively. And that's a bit of a choice. But if you've got an IUD, it's a little different. If you have an IUD, then it's different. So we, you know, it's a little bit more costly to actually use it in terms of discomfort and the price. And then once you have it, it can fail and it can not work like by falling out. But these things aren't things that you really choose to the extent that you're choosing how you use the pill. So it's a very effective, very reliable form of birth control, but it does sometimes fail. And uh, we observe those situations in which women, you know, got an IUD, but get pregnant soon afterwards in the data we see about 350 of those situations. So there aren't many. It's very uncommon for it to fail. But when it does, you know, we really think that, you know, you're a very good comparison to someone who got the same IUD uh, at the same time, was the same age as you, and it worked perfectly fine for them because it wasn't so much in your control how well it worked for you. So the primary question really is what happens to those women Uh, and particularly to their careers who had unplanned pregnancies despite being on this kind of long-term birth control on IUDs. Exactly. And so the idea is that we want to compare the what happens in the labor market, so what happens to your earnings, your employment, the type of job you have for women who have these unplanned pregnancies compared to women who got the exact same type of birth control like at the same time, who are the same age, and who didn't have any unplanned pregnancies. Yeah. Well, let's talk about your findings, um, and then we'll get into kind of how they compare to other situations. First, tell us about the consequences for the careers of women who went on IUDs, had an unplanned pregnancy, and then went back to the workforce. What happened to the outlook on their incomes? So for these women who had an unplanned pregnancy, First, you know, you have a choice when you have this unplanned pregnancy, and some of these women have an abortion, so not all of the women have a child. But uh, what we see is that when you have a child, then that's associated with really large earnings impacts, about 25% kind of in the longer term. Twenty, uh, So a 25% drop? Yeah, compared in to... In what they could have earned? Yeah, compare, exactly. Compared to a woman who doesn't have any children and is getting a lar- uh, IUD at, at the same time and is the same age. I think what's interesting is that that figure of the impact depends a lot on what the circumstances are in which the woman became pregnant. So if women are enrolled in some kind of training program at the time that they have these unplanned pregnancies then the impacts on their earnings are more like 35% or a little bit larger. What do you mean by a training program? So I think you can kind of have an example in your mind of a woman who's something like a CNA and nurse's assistant. So they're helping with tasks at a hospital, but they're not the most pleasant tasks and they don't have, you know, a lot of training in order to do that job. It's a pretty low paid job. But many of those people want to have a higher paid version of that job. So they would go and get nurse certification, something like that. Um, and they would you know, be kind of a higher skilled version, but in the same field. And that's like a lot of what we see in the data, that these are training programs that you don't have to think of as like, you know, they're getting their PhD or they're getting a college degree, but they're getting some kind of formal training. But you know, the, the definition includes all of those things. Most of these women are on the older side, so they're all over 22. 
Okay, so then they that training gets interrupted by an unplanned pregnancy. Yeah, and it seems like they don't really, as far as we can see, recover of that training. So they drop out, and that's, as far as we can see, the end of the story. And that's really what we see in the occupation trajectories, too, in general, that the kind of most clear and most stark difference between these women who have these unplanned pregnancies and those who don't is that they don't seem to advance kind of in the occupational ladder by moving to jobs that require higher skills. And so therefore, if you're not advancing in your career, you're also probably not continuing to get more money as you go along. Yeah, exactly. And those um, certifications come with big pay raises, especially, I don't know about especially, but definitely in a country like Sweden, which is unionized. So we see that this translates to, you know, income, but it's not like kind of in a mysterious way. It's actually in a really clear way that uh, education path seems to be interrupted and there's no upskilling kind of. What about for a college education? Is that this, the same as a, as a training program? So remember that we have 350 um, women. So we actually can't look in super detailed, disaggregated kind of categories. I wish we could. And I think that, you know, that would be kind of the most interesting place for future research Mm. to to go. But when we start cutting too finely, then we'll end up with like 30 people who are in the group. And that's not... uh, very useful for making statistical determinations. So, so you don't have then a lot of demographic information as well. So you can have differences there. Yeah, we have it, but we pretty much decide like anything that we're doing, we're cutting by two. Right, we're cutting right. in half. So <laughs> okay. younger versus older, or in educational programs or not. Fair, um, fair enough. So then you compared that data to what happened to women who had fully planned pregnancies. In fact, so planned that they underwent in vitro fertilization procedures. Why look at that versus just plain planned pregnancies the old-fashioned way? Yeah, so again, it's all about having a good comparison group. So when we look at women who undergo IVF procedures, we compare women who have successful first IVF procedures to women who have undergo the same procedure at the same age and don't have it succeed the first time. And that looks random-ish. And then we, you know, can follow them similar compared to a woman who's extremely similar to them. And it seems like, you know, whether that particular IVF attempt was successful or not is more like an experiment than comparing a woman who's like 32 years old and decides to have a child to all the other 32-year-old women who decided not to have a child because you'd worry that there's something about her life that led to that decision that's different from all the other women. So we have less of that worry when we can pick like this very clean comparison. Right. And and I suppose then, again, it's just more obvious for you in the data. You can look at people who underwent in vitro fertilization and know that that's something that they wanted to happen, where you don't necessarily know that without that, right? Yeah, exactly. So I guess if you just looked at any woman who has a child, then it's a mix of planned and unplanned children. And as you get older, it's you know more planned. And as you go younger, it's less planned, but it's a mixture all the time. Okay. So tell us about the findings there with the IVF data. So when we look at women in Sweden, and this isn't the first study that's looked at these IVF successes or failures, um, actually. So we, we find something similar but slightly different to other studies. So uh, we actually see, you know, that compared to a woman who has an unsuccessful first IVF procedure, there's almost no difference in the long term in earnings. But a lot of that is because 
women who don't have successful first procedures go on to have successful second procedures or third procedures, and they eventually do um, have children. So you're kind of comparing women who have children to other women who have children, just younger children. And we want to kind of account for that. So when we account for that, you know, if you think, for example, that there are larger impacts of having a newborn than having like a one-year-old, then you'd want to do that. And so when we account for that, we see that the impact is still, you know, much smaller. So it's about 15% compared to the 25% that I mentioned for unplanned births. So again, we're talking about a decline in income. Yeah. And I think one caveat to that is that what does planning mean? And like, how are we measuring this? When we talk about the impact of a planned child, we mean like literally the arrival of the child. But there could be a lot of things that you're doing beforehand. That's what planning kind of means, maybe. Maybe you already took a job that is in a different field than you would be in otherwise if you because you were thinking about how can I mix family and career. So that is important to keep in mind when we talk about these comparisons of planned children. All right, let's review then uh, what these two sets of results tell you about the impact of uh, shifting or deciding the timing of having a first child. What are some of the long-term effects first on earnings and then on career trajectories? What we see is that children who are unplanned seem to have a larger impact, 25% on average, on earnings, but that impact is even larger when a woman has is younger when she has her unplanned child. So, you know, when we compare unplanned to planned, and by that I mean we compare women who didn't want to have a child but became pregnant anyway, to women who are trying to have a child through IVF, we see smaller impacts in the IVF group than we do in the among women who are hoping not to have a child but who have an unplanned pregnancy. But also within the unplanned pregnancy group, we see larger impacts for younger women. And so that to me suggests that it's true that planning can mitigate the impact of children on women's careers as measured by earnings, but also as measured by, you know, whether they advance in the occupational ladder in terms of skill requirements of the job that they have. But also that, you know, just being younger or in a more like unstable place in your career when you have this unplanned pregnancy results in larger impacts. So just getting older and having an unplanned child mitigates the impact of children on careers, but also planning no matter what your age mitigates the impact of children on careers. Was there anything in the findings that surprised you? Uh, You've done a lot of research on motherhood and the gender pay gap. How does this fit into your your previous findings and your ongoing research? Well, can I tell you about not my ongoing research, but about my personal learning path? Absolutely. (laughs) Because I'll tell you about both. But just to first say that actually my advice to grad students is completely the opposite of what's in this paper. And I'm always <laughs> like, you should have children in grad school. Definitely. It's much better than having children later. I still would give that advice. You know, like if I had to bet on, on whether this was true in academia, I think that it's what I'm saying is correct. That, um, that you know, it's totally fine to have kids in grad school compared to like it's harder a little bit later. So in that sense, you know, I definitely wasn't expecting necessarily this finding, I'll say. <laughs> and I think it varies by where, where you are, what field you're in, what you're doing. And like, I think we're very lucky actually in academia that grad school like looks really different than going into like getting your associate's degree or something like that at night school. 
So that surprised me, actually, that finding in general. I mean, when I think about my mother who was getting an associate's degree while we were young kids, it was really, really hard. So I can see how this result is true in other settings or other fields. And I think that part of the point of the paper is that there's a lot of heterogeneity in this. There's a lot of differences depending on circumstances um, in these impacts, and, and that's kind of a big takeaway. The other thing that uh, I have studied before is, you know, what fields women go into and like kind of occupational segregation. And I think that that is still something that is sort of missing from these estimates in this paper, but in a lot of other work too, which is, you know, women are potentially choosing careers already way, way before they, we observe them in kind of the data. So in college and high school, even maybe even before, um, they're making choices that lead them down certain paths with childbirth, future childbirth in mind. And I think that that gets less true over time. So I'm, I'm not sure that that's as true for at least the college students that I interact with. But I think it, it was definitely true a few years ago. And, you know, the fact that it's becoming less true is reflecting the fact that, you know, we are making some progress actually on this balancing careers and children thing. Well, so talk a bit now about how this data can inform both policymaking and then you know, even individual decision-making around having a child while wanting to continuing, while wanting to continue on in a career? Uh, that's a great question. So I don't know. I think a lot of my research and a lot of my read of other research is that policy is a lot less effective, I think, at changing big things like this than we expect it to be or want it to be. I haven't seen much strong evidence that the policy environment has such a big impact on women's decision to return to work or the timing of children, for example. I think there are a lot of countries who really want to throw a lot of incentives at having more children because we do have this, you know, below replacement rate fertility in many, many corners of the world right now. Mm -hmm. And it's been surprising how ineffective, how difficult that is. So I don't necessarily think that there's a huge role for policy. However, I think that it's clear that if we uh, give access to fertility timing to women, then it's going to have a huge impact on their investments. And um, that's been clear, I think, since this research on the birth control pill that I mentioned earlier by Bailey and um, Golden and Katz. And I think that like helping women to control fertility is kind of crucial for investing in careers and their progress in the labor market. Yana, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. It was great talking to you. The Pie is a production of the Becker Friedman Institute for Economics and part of the University of Chicago Podcast Network. If you'd like to keep in touch with the latest economic research from the University of Chicago, you can visit bfi.uchicago.edu slash subscribe. Carry the Two is the show that pulls back the curtain to reveal the mathematical and statistical gears that turn the world. Co-host Katie Woodkoski and Ian Martin bring unique perspectives from the fields of mathematics and statistics to convey how mathematical research drives the world around us. With each episode tackling a different topic, subscribe to Carry the Two, part of the award-winning University of Chicago Podcast Network. Our theme music was composed by Story Mechanics, production assistance from the BFI Communications team. I'm Tess Vigland, your host and executive producer. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>